0: Now, we've officially, uh, I know that all of you know that we have a baby in the house because she's the only thing anybody watches when she's in this room. There she <laughs> is. right? And we've hit a few new stages recently, okay? Um, we've hit the stage uh, where we are spitting baby food out, which is kind of entertaining, but also it can get annoying. Uh, we've also hit the stage, I heard something back there. Yeah. Well, if anything jumps out, you guys gotta let me know. <laughs> Uh, we also hit the stage where she's saying "dada" first, which you know, yeah. victory for me. Uh, but the reality is, it's just the easiest vowel sounds to say. So, but I'll take I'll take any wins I can take. Uh, we're at the stage of kind of wounded soldier, not quite crawling, but definitely moving around stage. Uh, we're starting to see uh, the depravity of the human heart because she's getting into everything she's not supposed to get into, even though she has 8 billion toys in front of her. She wants to stick her hands under the couch and pull on the, uh, you know, things plugged into the wall and stick her hands under the baseboard heaters and like everything she's not supposed to do. Uh, but we're also at the beginning of the stage of kind of the, I refuse to not be the center of attention. Okay. Some of you perpetuate this. We can talk about that later. Uh, But we're at that stage where, like, even if you're in the same room with her, if you're not looking at her and, like, paying attention to her, she gets fussy and kind of frustrated at you about it. Um, Now, most of the time she's smiling and she's, you know, the easiest baby ever. But this gets complicated, right, at sleepy time, at nap time, sleepy time, at Times to sleep, nap time, and bedtime sleepiness makes this harder. Now, as you grow in your sort of parenting skills, uh, you learn that there are times when the, the little one has kind of gone past the ability to put themselves to sleep. Your options aren't either let them cr- like really bad cry themselves to sleep, which that's a no for me, or you have to go in there and do something. Right now, this isn't all the time, usually a bottle, some rocking and, and you put her in the crib and in two minutes she's she's gone. Right. The light switch is off and she's out. Uh, and so that's that's the norm. But sometimes she basically refuses and you can start to see that little personality of like, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do right now. And so there's a combo of this need for sleep, too much fussiness. And at that point, you as the parent are going to have to overcome her with your presence and with your love in order to get her to fall asleep. That's just like part of parenting. Uh, anybody that's had a baby around you, you know that. And I think this is a picture of kind of the text we read. Uh, we're going to focus in on just a section of it. Uh, it. It's a picture of God's love for us, but it, it's also a reminder to us, as we often say, that, that God's love it is so much deeper than earthly loves. Like that kind of love that we have for our children and for even for our friends it is a shadow of the love that God has for us. And so we get a glimpse of this in the book of Zephaniah. We we heard that earlier, uh, but here it is again. This is just verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. Now we can do a whole sermon series just on that sentence for us, right? As a church family, as Christians in the world, God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now I wanna just focus in on that one line, he will quiet you by his love. Because this is kind of the picture of God that we as the people of God need to really be able to get our minds around. And it's the picture of God that I struggle most often with that God is a God whose love is going to overcome our fears, our doubts, our objections to it, all of the brokenness that makes us not always trust Him. And we might not even realize that we don't trust Him. We're, we're like that crying baby who can't even have the enough kind of skills to put themselves, to quiet themselves down. And we need the love of our Father to do that for us. And so what we're looking at with Advent is sort of the the evidence of this love that's going to be able to quiet our hearts and then through us quiet the hearts of others around us. God's love was so big for the world that what did he do? We celebrate it in Christmas and Advent every year. He sends his son into the world to be with us, to be human. And it's so big that that same son, after dying and resurrecting, is going to return to set up his kingdom. And so then today, we just want to answer the question, uh, and I'm going to do it as as quickly as I can because I can smell the food too. Um, What love are we talking about? Because we we love love. We love the idea of love. All of our movies and sitcoms and all that stuff is about love, right? There's always this element of love in our songs and in everything. Uh, What is it that can make you be willing to sit with a screaming baby for sometimes 10, 15, 20 minutes? to try to get them to sleep. But you've, if you've never done that, is not fun. Well, what can get you to do that? Obligation, yeah, maybe for a couple times, but love is going to be the thing that will really get you there. What's going to be able to get make you get up in the middle of the night when you haven't slept for a few nights because of that same baby and go be with them one more time? It's love that's going to do that. And so love will do that, and we all understand the importance of love in our lives, right? Kind of in the words of uh, of a uh, relational psychotherapist in his book, A Beautiful Risk. He he basically makes the point that without love, it's kind of pointless. He says this: loving is not merely one thing among others that we're called to. Love is not an additive, right? Maybe we would say it this way: it's it's not a bug in the system; it's the feature, right? It's it's not an additive. It's not merely one thing among others we're called to. Love is of the essence of being human, the connective tissue of reality, the oxygen of life. Now, why would that be? If we're created in the image of God and the scriptures say that God is love, then it's at the core of who we are. And so, there's actually a chapter in the Bible that we kind of call the love chapter. There's the resurrection chapter and the love chapter. Uh, When I was licensed in the Alliance, that was a question which one of those is the love chapter and which is the resurrection chapter. And I was nervous that I was going to get it wrong because one is 1 Corinthians 13 and one is 1 Corinthians 15. And I could have easily mixed those up, but thankfully I didn't. And so, 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. Now, in this first little section of the chapter, Paul is dealing with the meaning that love gives to life, and he gives three areas that, that he speaks to. The first is that he talks to the Corinthian church about their speech, okay? L- listen to verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to start in verse 1, if you're following along. He says this about speech. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy, noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Literally, one of these symbols, like on a drum kit. So Paul's getting at something that we all kind of know intuitively, right? We all know this: that words without love aren't going to be heard very well. Okay, words without love are kind of void of meaning. We can say all the right things, we can speak eloquently, but if it's not coming from love, it's going to be empty of its meaning and of its power. If you've been in any kind of relationship with anyone, whether it's a sibling, your friend, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whatever it is, if you speak to someone, even something that's true, but it's not done in a loving way, those are fighting words sometimes, right? It's it's not going to land. And so uh, it's simply empty of its meaning. Think about how this relates to Advent and what God has been saying all along. God is not a God of empty words. He doesn't just tell us that he loves his people. He shows us consistently over and over. His words are infused with love. Their foundation is his love for his people and his creation. God's words about coming to rescue his people weren't just words. In Christmas, we celebrate the culmination of that, that he did come in Jesus to rescue. And he he came to be with us. He's our Emmanuel, our God with us. And so then Paul in verse two goes on to talk not just about what we say, but about what we then know. This is a hard one for some of us. Verse two, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Right, you can know all the right things. You can be like the Corinthian church and be obsessed with this idea of knowledge. And... and, and not have love, and it's kind of meaningless. And and there's a lot of us, a lot of people in our day and age who are like this as well. Think of the last time you met someone who's incredibly smart, who's incredibly knowledgeable, but they were not loving. It's not that impressive. They're like, cool, you know a lot, but you're kind of a jerk, and I don't want to listen to you, right? Earlier in the same book, Paul tells, I don't know why that was so funny for you, Paul tells the Corinthian church that knowledge without love puffs up but that love builds up. Knowledge without love puffs up the one who thinks they know a lot, but isn't very loving. But love actually builds up, which is his way of saying, yeah, you can be knowledgeable, but be loving because loving knowledge builds up, but just knowledge puffs up. Love has to be underneath knowledge or else Paul says, we're nothing. We're just a clanging cymbal. It's the old saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, care right? We, we all know this even in our own relationships. If the truth is said without love, people aren't going to hear that. Well, they're going to hear it, but they're not going to hear it, right? It can be the truest truth that has ever been spoken, but if it isn't supported by love and if they don't feel loved by you, it's empty. It's not going to work. So that's the first two. Then thirdly, Paul says that love doesn't just infuse our words and knowledge, but that it goes on, as he says in verse three, it also infuses meaning into what we do. So here's verse three. If I give away all I have, if I do charitable work, if I do the right things, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I sacrifice myself for other people, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So you can do the right things for the wrong reasons and gain nothing. Let's say you just lost your job, you have no way to figure out how you're going to eat or pay for electricity or whatever, and I'm real wealthy, and I come to you and say, and I, and I say, hey, I'm going to give you enough money for you to be able to survive, uh, but I'm not doing it because I love you, I just want the tax write-off. Right Now, some of us might be like, okay, fine, that's you know, send the money, that's, that's fine. Um, but I think underneath all of that, if we're honest, we might feel like saying, you know what, you can keep your money... I'd rather not play a part in your fake charity. I don't want to be part of your fake display of love. That's not what it's going to be about for me. People want to be loved. We want to be loved. We were made for that. Love is what gives meaning to life. It's what gives life stuff. You know, it gives life meaning. Love has to be the driver, as Paul says here, for what we say, what we think, we do if, as God's people, we're going to have meaningful relationships and ministry to people around us, if we're going to be the kind of love that we celebrate at Christmas in in Jesus coming. Now, in the next section in 1 Corinthians 13, if you're looking at it, for sure you have heard this before if you've been around church, or honestly, if you grew up in America, you've probably heard this. Uh, It's the section we have all over the place. Uh, It's really popular. We hear it most often at weddings. This is the section we think of. Look at at verses four to seven. Now, just as a quick aside, uh, this takes us back to our hurry series in that the first thing he says is that love is patient, which is interesting. Now, verses four to seven, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, when I read that, there's an element of that, an element of how I respond to that internally that's similar to how I respond to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Like with every refrain, I'm like, ouch. Ouch, that's not me. I'm definitely arrogant. I'm definitely irritable. I'm rude. I sometimes rejoice at wrongdoing. Sometimes I don't bear all, right? I I read that and it's like a hard indictment on my own heart. But the the truth is, I think we all long for this kind of love. We want to be this kind of love and we want to receive this kind of love. And and so we rarely hit all of these either as a, a giver of love or as a receiver of love. I don't know any relationship that the people in it would say that this is true of both sides all the time. So it seems kind of, Impossible to do that. In our humanity, this love, just like the fruit of the Spirit in our humanity, is impossible for us to get to. No one I've ever met or know of, no matter how holy they are or mature they are, is what Paul describes here perfectly all the time. This is why God sent Jesus into the world to be for us what we could not be. That Jesus was and is all of these descriptors. Replace the word love with Jesus in this text, and you get a picture of the, the nature of God himself. Jesus is for us what we cannot be. He is a display of God in the flesh, and that's the beauty of the Christmas story, and that's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus is all of these things for us, and he's the presence of Uh, and that the presence of Jesus in us is so that now you get to be the embodiment of this love that Paul describes to people around you, which without Jesus is an impossibility, right? So these are the questions, these rhetorical questions. What if you never insisted on your own way in your family, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, wherever it was, in your relationships? What if you were never irritable or resentful with your family who has maybe wronged you, or your uh, coworkers who have done something wrong to you? What, what if you were just never that way? What, what if you were the most hopeful person anyone in your life knew? Is that you? Are you that embodiment of love? This is the kind of love that I think is going to begin to create the spaces in your life over time where the gospel of Jesus, the story of Christmas, can become part of that conversation can become part of that relationship. It's this kind of love that God uses through you to, to quiet the souls of those around you so that they can finally hear the good news that you have for them about Jesus coming and being with us. Now, I wanna keep going here in this text because I want you to see how Paul pulls categories from verses one to three back into the picture here in verses eight through 10. He says this in verse eight, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So what we say, what we know, and even what we do will pass away. But Paul isn't pulling any of its punches here, all of your gifts, your talents, your wise insights, your charitable actions, all that stuff has an end date on it. It has an expiration date on it. There's nothing that we can say or do that's going to make that not be a reality because we are going to die. And when we die, all of those things go away. But he says, there's one thing that will not perish. There's one thing that will stand the test of time even after we're gone, and that is love. This Last week, I've been preparing to speak at my father-in-law's memorial service, and this theme has come up. He's gone now, but he's left us with this heritage of love, that it it goes on beyond him. Paul says there at the top of verse 8 that love never ends. It's categorically different from everything that Paul has talked about up to this Point. It brings the infinite to bear on the finite. That love is this thing that brings the infinite to bear onto the finite. And, and so uh, love sort of injects eternal significance into life, right? Like you can go out to some coffee with somebody and that's fine. But if you go out to coffee with somebody that you really love, it's different, right? It's, it's a different thing. Uh, Last night, I went out to dinner with my wife, and I could go out to dinner with any of you, and the food would be great. But there's something different about going out to dinner with somebody that I deeply love, the conversations and the time together. Love transcends that stuff. This is why people long for it so much. And in our culture and in our time, we need to be aware that what we're being told we should do is to redefine love into our own image. To say, yeah, that's nice what God has to say about love, but but this is what I think it is. To make love into what we want and not what God designed it to be. And as one theologian says, when you rub against the grain of the universe, you're going to get splinters. You're going to get splinters. It seems like that's really the only option we have. And so what we're failing to realize is that we're actually moving ourselves away. As we redefine love, we're moving ourselves away from what we actually really want and need when it comes to love. And th- this is from uh, Barbara Fredrickson, who's a professor of psychology. Uh, she said in a book called Love 2.0, this is her definition of love. Love is not exclusive. Love's timescale is far shorter than we typically think. Now, this is not going to be the encouraging like sermon part that you thought you were going to get by Christmas, right? Merry Christmas. Love is not exclusive. Love's time scale is far shorter than we typically think. Love, as you'll see, is not lasting. And perhaps most challenging of all, love is not unconditional. Love is that micro moment of warmth and connection that you share with one another in the living room. Love is an emotion, a momentary state. Right now, at this very moment in which I'm crafting a sentence, I do not love my husband. I wonder if he read this. Our, posit- our positivity resonance, after all, only lasts as long as we two are engaged with one another. The same goes for you and your loved ones. Unless you're cuddled up with someone reading these words aloud to him or her right now, you don't love anyone. That's what we're being told. Now, now I understand why we might want to redefine love like this, right? Because genuine biblical godlike love is impossible for us on our own, and we all know it. But I got to ask, really, this is it? This is the vision of love that we think is going to work. What I want to argue is that love 2.0 is unsafe, untenable, and unworkable. Nobody wants this. We, We can't let go of the biblical vision for what love is. We should not want to let go of God's picture of love that we see in Christmas that gives meaning, beauty, and lasting significance to our lives. But how do we hold on to this? How do we hang on to a biblical vision for love? Well, the way we gain biblical vision for love is by realizing first that we've we, we've been part of a, a mistake in how we think about love we think that love is something located inside of ourselves right what does every movie tell you to do? Find yourself find who you really are and I've found who I really am and I don't like him. I need Jesus to rescue me from him right what we we, we think that love is something inside of ourselves we think love is something we do and emotionally experience and when love exists like this when love exists within us, Barbara's right. It has an end date, and it's not very, it's very fickle, and it's not very safe. So if love is going to be the biblical God love, the kind of uh, love that's full of beauty and mystery and worth, then it has to come from somewhere outside of us. This is why Paul talks about love as something that's categorically different from us. Love is something that happens outside of us, and it's something that happens to us. Love isn't our words, it's not our feelings, it isn't even our actions, it's something bigger than that. All of those things have to be undergirded by love, but love is something bigger, more transcendent than that. So if love has to be somewhere outside of us to be the biblical vision for love, then we know that God is the only one who can fulfill that, and particularly for us, God in the flesh, Jesus. God is love. And what God is saying is that you are not just noise. You are not just meaningless. God is saying that he sees all the flaws in us and he still pursues us. He still loves us and comes for us. God is saying that his love will have no end because he has no end. He's ultimately saying that because of his love for us, he would give everything that he has, which is everything to love us. This is the good news that the Israelites were looking forward to, as we think about the first advent, and it's the good news that we have heard in Jesus as we think about his second coming, that Jesus Christ has looked at us in our state of failed attempts to love, and he has said, I will die for you because I love you. Think of the, the, the sin that you committed recently, Not like the ones when I was young and foolish. I No, like the one you committed this morning, or like maybe last night if you're extra holy. Right. You haven't committed any yet, but I guarantee you I'm going to commit some sin when I get in that uh, room over there and I get impatient in the lunch line. Right. That's unloving and that's going to happen. And, and so think about that stuff, the foolishness, all, all the things. And, and Jesus sees that and he says, I, I, I did die for that. It's already taken care of. You're in me now. That, that's how my love for you works, but. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to think of love this way. We see in ourselves all these things that, that limit our love. We're impatient. We're rude. We're arrogant. We do wrong things on and on and on, right? We could go. We find ourselves having trouble loving our friends, loving our coworkers for sure, loving our spouses and our kids, right? What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with the fact that we even have a hard time loving God sometimes? Like, where are you, God? The reason the gospel is actually good news is that it's not about what we need to do for others or even for God, but it's about what God has done for us in Christmas, in Jesus, in this Advent story. It's about what God, driven by his love, has already done. His posture towards us is that he's the one, as I often say, who's leaning in and initiating that loving relationship. He's saying, I, I see what you did, but come back. So come back. I-, I want to be with you. He's not sitting back waiting for us to get it all together. Uh, when you figure it out, then come see me. That's never the posture of God. He's leaning in with arms open. He never wears down. He never gets tired. I love thinking about this stuff. He's never seen a sunrise that he was tired of. And he's never had a thought towards you that wasn't loving. All your foolishness cannot outdo the love that God has for you because God never ends and God is love, so his love never ends. This is what we need to hear. This is most certainly what our world needs to experience in here, that the battle has been won. Jesus has done it. He really has done it. He's been victorious. This is what we need to hear this Advent season as we think about Jesus coming to us, Jesus arriving with us. Jesus is love in the flesh. We're we're fighting and striving and, and trying to get ourselves together. We're getting ourselves all tied up in knots, trying to get love right. And all along, Jesus, who is love for us on our behalf, has been saying, listen, it's not dependent on you. I've done it already. Just trust in me and be In me, you get to rest and enjoy my love because I have already accomplished love for you, and I want to accomplish love now through you. Let me tell you this story. Uh, This is from an atheist philosopher. He said in his work that's called On Love. This is, I think, it's pronounced Elaine de Botton. That was a butcher job. French guy. He said in his work called On Love. Now, remember, he's an atheist philosopher. He said, this is a long story, passing an unfortunate woman in the street one day, my girlfriend asked me, would you have loved me if I'd had an enormous birthmark on my face like she does? The yearning is that the answer be yes, an answer that would place love above the mundane surfaces of the body or more particularly its cruel, unchangeable ones, i.e. I will love you not just for your wit and talent and beauty, but simply because you are You, with no strings attached, I love you for who you are, deep in your soul, not for the color of your eyes or the length of your legs or the size of your checkbook. The longing is that the lover admire us, stripped of our external assets, appreciating the essence of our being without accomplishment. Even if we're beautiful and rich, then we do not wish to be loved on account of these things, for they may fail us, and with them love." The desire is that I be loved even if I lose everything, leaving nothing but me, this mysterious me, taken to be the self at its weakest, most vulnerable point. Do you love me enough that I may be weak with you? Everyone loves strength, but do you love me for my weakness? And the answer to that question in the mouth of Jesus is yes. Strip away all that stuff, and he loves you, and he died for you, and he resurrected on your behalf and is coming to get you and take you home. All of us wonder in this uh, in this room, and, and even if you're watching online, we wonder this in some form or another. Does God really love me? Can I be loved? I feel unlovable, but can I be loved? And the answer, the message of Christmas, the message of Advent, is this resounding, yes, God loves you. God, who's, God who is love that never ends is always saying, yes, he loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, this reality of your love. We thank you for the expression of your love that you've given to us in the community of our church, uh, both locally and as a part of the global uh, church of your people. And we thank you that um, through your word, we can can again feel your love for us. And I pray this week as we uh, spend time with maybe people we don't see very often, or maybe we just see them a few times a year, that this love would permeate everything we say and everything we do and everything we think that we wouldn't be noisy gongs and clashing cymbals at Christmas dinner, but that we would be love because we've been loved by you. As your word says, because you first loved us, we now love. And so would that be the theme as we walk away from here, as we finish up the Advent season, would we remember that underneath all of the stuff that we know about who you are is love. And this is why you've come for us this season. We thank you for that. And we pray this in Jesus name.